Section 10 of A Journey Round My Room by Xavier de Maistre. Translated by Henry Atwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 34. Correspondence. The upset of my post-chase has rendered the reader the service of shortening my journey by a good dozen chapters, for, upon getting up, I found myself close to the bureau and saw that I had no time left for any observations upon a number of engravings and pictures which had yet to be surveyed, and which might have lengthened the excursions into the realm of painting. Leaving to the right the portraits of Raphael and his mistress, the Chevalier de Sasse and the Shepherdess of the Alps, and taking the left, the side on which the window is situated, my bureau comes into view. It is the first and the most prominent object the traveller's eyes light upon, taking the route I have indicated. It is surmounted by a few shelves that serve as a bookcase, and the whole is terminated by a bust which completes the pyramid, and contributes more than any other object to the adornment of this region. Upon entering the first drawer to the left, we find an inkstand, paper of all kinds, pens ready-mended, and sealing wax, all which sets the most indolent person longing to write. I am sure, dear Jenny, that if you chanced to open this drawer, you would reply to the letter I wrote you a year ago. In the opposite drawer lies a confused heap of materials for a touching history of the prisoner of Pignorel, which, my dear friends, you will ere long read. Between these two drawers is a recess into which I throw whatever letters I receive. All that have reached me during the last ten years are there. The oldest of them are arranged according to date in several packets. The new ones lie pell-mell. Besides these, I have several dating from my early boyhood. How great a pleasure it is to behold again, through the medium of these letters, the interesting scenes of our early years to be once again transported into those happy days that we shall see no more. How full is my heart, and how deeply tinged with sadness is its joy, as my eyes wander over those words traced by one who is gone forever. That handwriting is his, and it was his heart that guided his hand. It was to me that he addressed this letter, and this letter is all that is left of him. When I put into my hand this recess, I seldom leave the spot for the whole day. In like manner, a traveller will pass rapidly through whole provinces of Italy, making a few hurried and trivial observations on the way, and upon reaching Rome will take up his abode there for months. This is the richest vein in the mine I am exploring. How changed I find my ideas and sentiments! and how altered do my friends appear when I examine them as they were in days gone by, and as they are now. In these mirrors of the past I see them in mortal agitation about plans which no longer disturb them. Here I find an event announced which we evidently looked upon as a great misfortune, but by the end of the letter is wanting, and the circumstance is so entirely forgotten that I cannot now make out what the matter was which so concerned us. We were possessed by a thousand prejudices. 
We knew nothing of the world and of men, but then how warm was our intercourse, how intimate our friendship, how unbounded our confidence. In our ignorance there was bliss, but now, ah, all is changed. We have been compelled, as others, to read the human heart, and truth, falling like a bomb into the midst of us, has forever destroyed the enchanted palace of illusion. Chapter 35 The Withered Rose If the subject were worth the trouble, I could readily write a chapter upon that dry rose. It is a flower of last year's carnival. I gathered it myself in the Valentino, and in the evening, an hour before the ball was to begin, I bore it, full of hope and agreeably excited, to Madame Hortecastel for her acceptance. She took it, and without looking at me or it, placed it upon the toilette table. And how could she have given me any of her attention? She was engaged in looking at herself. There she stood before a large mirror. Her hair was ornamented for a fete, and the decorations of her dress were undergoing their final arrangement. She was so fully occupied, her attention was so totally absorbed by the ribbons, gauzes, and all sorts of finery that lay in heaps before her, that I did not get a good look or any sign of recognition. There was nothing for me but resignation. I held out humbly in my hand a number of pins arranged in order, but her pincushion being more within reach, she took them from her pincushion, and when I brought my hand nearer, she took them from my hand, quite indifferently, and in taking them up she would feel about for them with the tips of her fingers, without taking her eyes from the glass, lest she would lose sight of herself. For some time I held behind her a second mirror that she might judge better how her dress became her. And as her face reflected itself from one glass to another, I saw a perspective of coquettes, no one of whom paid me the least attention. In a word, I must confess that my rose and I cut a very poor figure. At last I lost all patience and unable to control the vexation that preyed upon me, I put down the looking-glass I had been holding, and went out angrily without taking leave. "'Where are you going?' she said, turning so as to see her figure in profile. I made no answer, but I listened some time at the door to see what effect my abrupt departure would have. "'Do you not see?' she said to her maid after a moment's silence, that this carico, particularly the lower part, is much too large at the waist, and will want pinning. Why and wherefore that rose is upon my shelf, I shall certainly not explain, for, as I said before, a withered rose does not deserve a chapter. And pray observe, ladies, that I make no reflection upon the adventure with the rose. I do not say whether Madame de Hortecastel did well or otherwise in preferring her dress to me, 
or whether I had any right to be a better reception. I take special care to deduce therefrom no general conclusions about the reality, the strength, and the duration of the affection of the ladies for their friends. I am content to cast this chapter, since it is one, into the world with the rest of my journey, without addressing it to anyone, and without recommending it to anyone. I will only add, gentlemen, a word of counsel. Impress well upon your minds this fact, that your mistress is no longer yours on the day of a ball. As soon as dressing begins, a lover is no more thought of than a husband would be, and the ball takes the place of a lover. Everyone knows how little a husband gains by enforcing his love. Take your trouble then, patiently, cheerfully, and my dear sir, do not deceive yourself. If a lady welcome you at a ball, it is not as a lover that you are received, for you are a husband, but as part of the ball, and you are therefore but a fraction of her new conquest. You are the decimal of a lover. Or it may be you dance well, and so give eclat to her graces. After all, perhaps, the most flattering way in which you can regard her kind welcome is to consider that she hopes by treating as her cavalier a man of parts like yourself, to excite the jealousy of her companions. Were it not for that, she would not notice you at all. It amounts then to this. You must resign yourself to your fate, and wait until the husband's role is played. I know those who would be glad to get off at so cheap a rate. End of section 10